to Mind Crime Liberty Show with me, Swinton Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we discuss why do Sean Gabb and Chris Catrone agree so much? Tim. I spent $5 to gain access to all of Doug Lane. He runs Sublation Media's interviews with Chris Catrone. Chris Catrone is a Marxist. Um, he's a very interesting Marxist. He's sort of like, he doesn't call himself a tanky, but, you know, he's sort of like a tanky in some sense, although not entirely. And... You know, the other person we call this is Sean Gabb. He was, I think, a guest on episode three and maybe episode 30 or something like that. One of them was why libertarian strategy failed. And I sense a deep parallel between these two seemingly opposite figures. They're actually basically of the same age, um, too. So now I'm going to start with Catrone here. Catrone's five ideas. I sort of summarized all his ideas into five things. Number one, the left is dead. He runs the Platypus Affiliated Society. And um, he makes the argument, and the platypus society gets accused of being right wing, excuse to be reactionary, and so forth. And he say the left is dead. And to reconstitute left, point number two, um, one must risk being a counter revolutionary force, which no one in professional managerial democratic left in, in the developed metropolitan countries, France, United States, Britain, Canada, wants to do. So he also, many of the critiques he gives to the Democrats equally apply to labor or the, 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 the official left in France. Um, so. And then this point number three, and this this is what I again find interesting about here. Like the Democrats as well suck and, and are merely a party of superficial progressive welfare state capitalists. They're just reform capitalists. He called the editor of Jacobin Bashkar with his name fake. He called him fake, a fake leftist. Uh, and would make the argument that like Bernie Sanders and Corbyn are safely controlled by the deep state, the managerial state. He's read Burnham too. Um, and he said that like you know, Bernie's been there for like 30 years in Washington. Like he knows he's his wife's friend with Jill Biden, like so far. You know, they know they know, you know, Bernie is Bernie knows how to play no Bernie knows how to play game. And he wrote an article on why not Trump. And uh he whether or not he quote unquote praised Trump, and there's of course you can find critics on Twitter and some will just saying, well, he's just the fascist reactionary who who wears Marx's clothes. Um and he would make the point that Marx He's the greatest revolutionary, and no one holds a candle to him. And finally, things art is important, and winning requires more than rational arguments. So I, when I first came on Doug Lane, I thought, okay, let's give this guy a listen. It's like, wow, this guy's cool and neat. What, like, this is, this is, I would say it's somewhat vaguely reactionary in some sense. Maybe his critics are correct. And even many of the peripheral points I agree with. Um, says war, Ukraine war is a war in Ukraine is a stupid tragedy, which happened mainly thanks to mainly Democrats. Um, he said Bush played a minor role in it, but like Clinton, Obama, Victoria Nuland, Biden, they were just basically bullying Russia. They're expanding NATO for like liberal democratic aims. You know, they view Russia as reactionary. Uh, they want to expand Russia into Russia. They want to break it up. It, it calls Russia a weak peripheral power, which you know the gas station with nukes. I mean, that's what. Now it's militarily strong, um, but like he basically agrees with Sean Gabb on like, like on like like United States should, and for that matter, Britain should not be sending weapons there. That's what he would say. Um, uh, and on January sixth, again, he's far from being like a CNN icon. He's saying that you know it's just it's just pointless fear mongering by the Democrats, or it's entirely valid. And like as part of occupying the cap, we said like if Marxists like myself ever take power, they'd have to do the exact same thing. They'd have to occupy the capital. Public buildings are for riots. That's what he said. Um, and also makes comments like total chrism society can lead you to join the Muslim Brotherhood or the Black Israelites. 
it doesn't lead you to join the Democrats. But you can say the Democrats just sort of sucked all these movements up in the United States. So I think his sociology of the Democrats is really good here. And he really makes fun of Obama as being an empty suit. Um, so, uh, and says that no revolution will happen unless the parents who voted for both Obama and Trump become one. I mean, he's somewhat from a working class background. Uh, and finally, he makes fun of COVID too. So, so, and he said he's praised Alex Jones too. Uh, so like, like as a list of things, it's quite incredible that like sublation interview, sublation media by Doug Lane, who's also interviewed people like Ben, Ben Burgess, uh, also interviews this guy. So of course there's things I disagree with about this guy. I want to say that I think a, 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 a Leninist revolution of the working class might be, not be possible. Like, like, like he thinks it's possible, but like in a sense, a strange sense, I agree with him, like in order to make it possible, what, 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 what must be done to get there. Um, um, so like, um, there's, there are aspects of his thought that I disagree with here. Um, um, but I want to bring in Sean Gap here. There's a, he, Catrone, like Gab, is also a curmudgeon. Like, they're both curmudgeons in a sense. And we had Gab on. He said that libertarian strategies failed. And to a large extent, depending on how you define success, you could say some minor counterfactual success. Like the Marxist-Lenist left, the libertarian right has failed to a large extent by any meaningful goal. Um, you know, we see the neocons and, like, the Republican Party, as well as the, you know, the Tories and and conservatives in Britain, you know, Peter Hitchens is great at going after these types of people. You know, I think Sean Gabb debated the XP. Yeah, he did. Boris Johnson. I mean, what, what Boris Johnson, you know, just like an empty suit too. Like, I mean, he's probably like a pro-Ukrainian guy. He's very pro-COVID. So like, like, you know, Boris Johnson and George Bobby Bush aren't, you know, worth defending. Now, whether or not like other them other politicians are worth defending is a good question here. But I think I think Gab is very correctly critical of the tax of a lot of libertarians. Um and um you know and that so to go back to like the sort of agreement part, they both agree that their sort of existing movements just get sucked up by the broader like fake parties in our society. Now Gab's in Gab in Gab's Sean Gab's case it'd be more like the Conservative Party of Britain or the Republican Party in the United States. In Catrone's point, it'd be more like the Democratic Party in the United States. But the parties sort of exist to sort of siphon off the radical parts of the movement into like, you know, bland, prepackaged, regime-compatible things here. Now, I think what Catrone and Gab would also agree about is like the Democrats, sort of broadly the middle-class left, is the dominant force of society for the past since like the World War One. Like World War One is like the, you know, the crisis of, Capitalism, as Gab would call, Katrone uh, would call, and you know, if you take certain arguments made by which I know Gab is read by Murray Rothbard, World War One is a turning point as well with the Federal Reserve in the United States, the sort of decline of Britain as an international to less international player. So, so World War One as a turning point is, is another key area where I'd say they also agree to a large extent here. Um, so that that would be my thing. So I think I don't think it's Gab and Katrone's agreement is is they would be the only ones too. So Hans Hoppe and Jeffrey Tucker wrote two great articles on, Hoppe, of course, wrote an article on the agreements, well, what Marx gets right. And, you know, Jeffrey Tucker, this is the very good Jeffrey Tucker, also wrote an article, I can't recite the exact title here, but I have it in the notes somewhere, that, um, uh, that like, if you take out certain elements of the class analysis of Marx, Marx becomes like, you know, he's like sort of like Adam Smith in that sense. He's a very good thinker in that way. So Swithin, um, am I doing the genetic fallacy here by taking these two intellectuals 
and organizing them by comparing viewpoints, not by species. I mean, maybe maybe well, that's what I'm doing here. I'm making just superficial comparisons. They don't actually agree. They just happen to agree on like you, you know the normally parties being stupid. They just happen to agree on like the Ukraine war. What do you make of my my spiel on their agreement? And I don't think those two thinkers, because like you take Caleb Malpin and Ron Paul, they were recently at a rally in Washington together. I think I think Caleb Malpin was there. Um, there's also a lot of agreement between them here, um, or is it entirely superficial? So you could hit the exact issues if you want, you could, or you could hit the general issues here. What do you make of my spiel here? And I think they're both interesting thinkers who have a high degree of intellect and should be at least taken seriously and not merely dismissed. So that, that's my minimum starting point here. Swithin, what would you make of it? I do think there's a quite a lot of overlap between the sort of radical libertarians and the Marxists, um, primarily in that they both, recognize the economic problems of the current sort of dispensation. Um, it's no uh, surprise that um, sort of Catrone, Gab, Caleb Maupin, Ron Paul would heavily criticize the existing system. Um, now, for sort of different reasons, but um, they would, so on the, on the libertarian side, it'd be like, you know, Ted Cruz, is he really free market? Well, no, he's not. You know, do we have anything at the moment which um, approaches what a free market would look like? Well, well, well clearly not. Um, on the left, I mean, it's clear that you have um, the view that, again, you know, the Democrats are just um, uh, the Democrats and the left in general are effectively just mouthpieces, you know, soft peddling uh, international finance. Um so uh, I, I think that um, when you have groups that have re relatively more radical economic doctrines, um, they can tend to agree on the uh, diagnosis, but whilst we'll have diametrically opposed positions on the solution. I mean, I'll give you another example of agreement. Um, I remember reading a very interesting article by the Communist Party of Great Britain uh, with respect to Brexit. Uh, because the Revolutionary Communist sorry, not the Revolutionary Communist Party, they're different. The Communist Party of Great Britain supported Brexit. Uh, the reason being is that, well, they saw that the uh, EU was a vehicle of international finance. And interestingly, they um, said that the Labour Party had become captured by international finance um, back in the 20s, uh, or maybe the 30s. I suspect this was at the time when Ramsay MacDonald was the first Labour Party Prime Minister, who then caused like a unity national government in in response to the great, well, the Wall Street crash, essentially, in 1929. Uh, I can't remember exactly the year Ramsay MacDonald becomes um, Prime Minister in England. Um, so, yeah, th th there's, there's, a, there's a great amount of, uh, of affinity um, um, be between methodologically with the Marxists and Libertarians, there can be uh, some very uh, similar approaches. Um, I mean, it's it's no surprise, for instance, that Hopper, uh, well, he's a former Marxist for one thing, and is also um, uh, cites uh, Nell and Horace's Rational Economic Man. Uh, I believe Nell and Hollis are both Marxists, and he cites this as a very good critique of neoclassical economic methodology. Uh, this very sort of a priorist approach to 
um, reality. Um, it's similar to you know, the Marxist position. You know, you've got the, if I get my Marxism correctly, you've got the economic base and the superstructure and all that kind of thing. Um, in sort of uh, certain ways of looking at libertarianism, you have um, the state as the ex, um you could say it's like he's the oppressor class, if you want to put it in Marxist terms, rather than the capitalist. So they, they have sort of a similar narrative, it's just that they have different villains. Uh, now, this is interesting where Gabby's slightly different, because Gabby's really probably best described as a radical and classical liberal, as opposed to a libertarian per se, I think. It might be fair. Um, his methodology is different. Uh, he's uh, His major influence is Epicurus. Uh, and is in, in a sense is more empirical um, in his um, in his approach, and is very and isn't a particularly sort of a priorist uh, in, in in his methodology, which to say so Marx and uh, and the uh, libertarians in general are. Um, so I think there's a a difference. I, I would also say as well, in some respects, on social matters that the um the economic left and the libertarian right can be more critical in certain circuits although not all of uh certain aspects of feminism more so than the mainstream left and the sort of uh, more mainstream uh, right um as to exactly why that's the case i'm not entirely sure although it may just largely be because their focus is more on economics rather than on social relations or at least they think that the social relations is going to be a uh, an outgrowth of the uh, economic um system as opposed to um and that's where the real sort of change there will come rather than focusing on social matters per se which is kind of what the left has done uh since say the 1970s um so yeah uh, overall then I, I i do think there is a, is a decent amount of crossover you brought up the point about family and the the crossover between the positions here and Catrone would point out that like you know if you go back to like the 1850s 1860s the marxists there were all like you know they all wore suits for the most part they weren't hippies they now to the extent that they weren't hippies said that they were hippies at the time is a good question was marx there was of course the prussian police file on marx too but in general, Marx, Lenin, and Engels, um, you know, they 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 did not try. They were not purposely subversive of certain uh, certain standards of society, which many of the so-called cultural leftists today, as Paul Garfrey would argue, are. So, so there's a sense where old school Marxists get viewed as being sort of like bourgeois bourgeois conservatives in a certain sense in that in that in that manner here. Um, so I don't I don't think the family thing is happens is happenstance. And there's always like you know if you take the Machiavellian series, there's always like a formal argument. And there's always the actual argument here. So Machiavellian as in the way James Burnham uses it. So like we did an episode on like what if if why do feminists want to work for capitalism? Is Marxism true? And in a certain sense, I was taking the inspiration for that episode, although I didn't heard of him yet, from Catrone too, because like even like the growth of capitalism. Now you could call that it depends, of course. As we've done a whole episode on this with Nick Land and McIntyre and Mark Fisher, but like the growth of like industrial state capitalism isn't a threat to certain family relations here. Um, so there's an area where the sort of paleo libertarians, not paleo capitalists, I think there's a difference here, 
um, the more paleo-libertarians would say that it is a threat um, to sort of family relations here. So I don't, I don't think that thing is a disagree. Now, now the Marxists want to sort of abolish the family in some ways, like so the modern day ones do. I think would clearly do it here, uh, although maybe not. And even and even unionization, what well, unionization in practice is about getting like historically was about mainly unions were sausage fests, as in full of men. And in developed countries, they were full of, of course, white men. So this is another area where, like, you know, uh, Catron would point out that the labor unions were destroyed and, like, they were hollowed out more so. But, like, many of the quote-unquote Democrats today wouldn't really like a lot of the politics of, like, uh, Jimmy Hoffa. And Thaddeus Russell also points that, like, you know, they just fought for breadwinning wages for, like, you know, white men in industrial class jobs in Britain, England, and so forth. So, uh, you know, and even, even the Soviet Union, as Sean Gabb would point out, in one of his roundtables with Keith Press and Todd Leos, like, you know, you have these late Soviet leaders like Brezhnev and others, uh, you know, are these, are these icons of feminism? And like, of course, today, East Germany is like, in some ways more like, quote unquote, trad than West Germany. So like, so like, you know, the, the as far as the family politics concerned, it, that's one of the interesting subtexts here, like the actual existing Marxism ends up being, um, actual existing working Marxism practice ends up being family oriented, or minorly traditional gender roles. So that's another area where I think they agree. Now, again, they don't agree necessarily on goals. Like, what's the goal or end of society? Or maybe they do. Maybe the classical liberals actually have more agreement there. Um, but then that goes back to our earlier episode, what is the good life? So what do you make of that point of terms of agreement here? Um, you know, you know, you, we, if we just take what they say for standards, just take what they say at face value, they did say what modern people would call homophobic comments many of the leading Marxists, for example. Um, just It's just a funny side effect. It's just a funny thing to bring up here. Like, it's, that's that's strange, you know. But what do you make of that, Swithin, like, uh, the family comments? Is there a deeper affinity underneath the surface here, you know? And, or, is that, or is that, again, just a surface level uh, issue? Swithin? It's interesting with Marxism, um, th- the Marxist uh, railed against what well, originally saw what well, seemed to. I mean, the, I'm pretty sure it's in the Communist Manifesto, which I believe was basically written by Engels rather than Marx. Um, argues that sort of like the father sort of oppresses his wife and children, uh, and um, they very much sort of like opposed um, the family as like this oppressive institution. Although the question then arises: What did they really mean? Uh, by that, um, because I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, Mises, for instance, I think was it Mises who said this that basically the only thing it needed to change with respect to the social relations between men and women was to let married women own property, um, because prior to that they they didn't, or at least in many cases they didn't. Um, so the question is, you know, what was really the ultimate goal of the Marxists when it came to um, when it comes to uh, family relations, I, I understand that they abolished marriage in the early parts of the Soviet Union uh, because the goal was this liberated um, uh, humanity in which the sort of like sexual mores, whatever, would be dispensed with in this sort of future. Uh, but then they realized it didn't work and then had more sort of quote unquote. Uh, oppressive, quote unquote, sort of patriarchal style laws uh, 
And I believe as well, abortion was banned in the USSR by Stalin. Um, and I think that lasted for quite a long time. I don't know if it's legal today. I'm not sure on that. Um, so there, there is definitely a... Um, I'm not sure exactly with the Marxists the, as to what their sort of ultimate family goal is. Now, that said, if they were a sort of short-termist rather than long-termist approach, then, then yes, in general, historically, they've been focused on uh, decent wages for um, working-class men. Um, that would certainly be true of, say, the strong sort of socialist Methodist types who would certainly be sort of pro-family, but I I think you can sort of reasonably distinguish them from the Marxist proper. They're very much sort of, probably by radical trade unionists as opposed to sort of Marxists as such. Um, So the Marxist view of the family is, I think is somewhat ambiguous with the early Marxists at least. Um, interesting with libertarians, um, though, is you could also argue that in well, certain, well, that's obviously the left libertarians uh, are basically very pro-free love, etc., sort of post-60s um, stuff. Although, then again, those sort of more right libertarians would say, yeah, but that's just not going to work outside the welfare state because that encourages uh, short-terms and high-time preference, etc. And uh, good luck if you have lots of kids outside of wedlock. Yay, you're going to do well. Then, of course, that raises the whole abortion question. Um, but there will be some cases in which women don't... I think I'm to someone... I was... No, no, yeah, someone no, to one of my cousins who basically didn't realise she was pregnant until, like, a few weeks before the baby was born. And so unless you're going to have abortion up until birth or, well, of course, you've got post-birth abortion as well. You could you could um, go for some sort of the Greek and Roman sort of exposure stuff. That's going to lay on sort of like what the general um, social uh, beliefs are going to be. So um, I think in both cases, um, the, the older Marxists and the... Um, libertarians are somewhat ambiguous on social on sort of um, social relations that said i will note uh caleb Malpin, Malpin is quite clear that he's sort of pro-women and pro and anti-racist and stuff whilst retaining his sort of very hardcore tanky economics so he is i don't know if he's unique but certainly uh noteworthy in the current marxist movement for holding that kind of view my next question says line of argument here is, and I think line of agreement more, be more precise is the, uh, uh, the hardcore Marxists as well as Crotone in particular, as well as good libertarians like Sean Gap, are aware of the dodgy relationship that libertarian intellectuals have with the broader movement here. Um, and again, Sean Gap in this sense is quite pessimistic here. And you know P- the PFS Society had a thing on, brought someone on last year about how movements become rackets. Um, and you can sort of see that they just sort of become, you know, this is the this is the criticism that people make of Khan Inc. conservating. It's just a sort of venue for electing gentlemen to make nice cushy jobs um, and think the think tank economy and so forth here. So Kutron is well. So Kutron on the left is very well aware of the how intellectuals and so forth, you know, just they just become 
you know, they just become like products of like think they're just just think tank entrepreneurs in a sense here that produce content here. And that's just not a new phenomenon here either. Cause you get you get this in the sixties and the fifties and forties as well. You get just pamphleteers. Now you do get more actual existing revolutions too. Um, but the revolutions don't occur in the societies where they're from. They occur in poor societies. Like Russia is a peasant peasant society that they go to, in a sense. Um, um, China, it's a peasant society. It doesn't really, the revolutionary movements don't happen in France. They don't happen in Belgium. They, they don't even, they almost happen in Germany, but they more or less fail. The fascists take over in Germany. Um, the, you know, uh, uh, it's not the revolutionary left that takes over here. So, so one of the things is that intellectuals in their own society have, they just basically become professional writers, um, you know, upper middle class, right. Or, you know, writers and types, and, you know, they're not revolutionaries in that sense. They're very critical, but what do they actually receive? And this is what he wrote in this compact magazine article. Um, Jacobin agonizes over its role as would be professional managers of the working class. Really? They aren't that, but just self deluded ideologues opining their craft of spin to the latest capitalist messaging. More or less unemployed millennial and Zoomers workers watch YouTube videos as neuroesthetics between anxious applications for their next gigs, seeking to explain the reasons for their endless misery. Hopefully they will quickly forget them for the niche clickbait ephemeral that they are in favor of more mainstream and hence more socially rational pursuits. So like the... So Kachron would say that like the the life of a Marxist revolutionary is a tough one. It's not like it's not a it's not a comfortable existence here. He said that they're sort of dead men on leave here. Um, that's what he said. So I do think I do think there is a sort of um, there is a sort of monetization of radical content, and it happens in the libertarian movement too. And I think like Visa magazine at times becomes the regime, as Lou Rocco I think would call it, the regime libertarians too. But but one area where Katron and Gab again agree is that like the sort of left liberals are, rule the world. That's 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 a very agreement here. Like who exactly is the ruling class? Well, it's like the FDR types, it's like the Kennedy types, it's like you know the Obama types. Those are the true rulers of the world. It's not it's not fascists. It's not white supremacists. It's not it's not any of the, the sort of paranoid fantasies that like. That people that ha- that normie Democrats have, it's not those people. It's 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 you know it's it's elite corporations. It's those types. So I do think that they end up having similar enemies too. So those are my two two things. So like intellectuals become sort of like you know charlatans in a sense or grifters. That's a comment he'd make, um, and that, I think that's an area of agreement between Gab and Patron, as well as who's the ruling class. Another area of agreement here. So, so with him, what do you make of those two points? Do you think that's agreement? Again, I'm going to repeat the question. Do you think that's just a superficial agreement? Or do you think there's some deeper level affinity there that needs to be addressed with him? I think, as I've said before, I think they do. I think they're clear-eyed on who the ruling class are, primarily because they have very different um economic doctrines and currently exist and so because in a sense they have very little to defend in the current system they can go well it's just like this i mean i suppose the um the party that so the thing is no one really wants to look like they're ruling in uh democratic states i mean if you have a monarchical uh government you can go oh yeah i'm the king yeah 
Um, whereas um, in, a, in, a, in a sort of theoretically democratic state, nobody wants to look like they're the ruling class. So um, the, the group you would expect to least... Um, to least um, explain or be truthful about who the ruling class are would basically be people like the uh, mainstream uh, Republicans and uh, the centrist types because, well, basically they're just defending the current economic dispensation. But they don't want to make it look like they're running it because, well, that would be ruling people and that's sort of against this the theoretical spirit of uh egalitarianism and democracy um so uh unlike the clinton types and the obama types i mean clearly they're uh they're not going to be clear as to who the ruling class are because well it's them and everyone always wants to look like they're not the ruling class um so I, I don't know whether the the ruling class, uh, who the ruling class are, runs any deeper than that necessarily, uh, with the affinity of the uh, libertarians in the market. Except, of course, you could say, and I suppose this is where Kevin Carson is an interesting um, sort of segue between Catrone and uh, Gab, in that, um, in a sense, you could say he's like a libertarian Marxist. Um, well, in particular, because he holds occupation and use as a the justification for legitimate land ownership as opposed to homesteading, um, which means that it's, society is significantly more egalitarian than it otherwise uh, would be. But um, I, th- I think where the real um, affinity is, especially for those in the radical libertarian persuasion would be to say that a lot of the things that the Marxists complain about are a result not of capitalism per se or the ownership of capital or having a capitalist class but rather these are um, privileges from the state and this is why we end up with the situation so really uh, the problems that the Marxists point out they're not really getting to the root cause of it whereas the libertarians are and I think that's where Gab has his affinities with um, uh, sort of the Marxists. And as I say, Kevin Carson is, is, is probably a good example of that kind of uh, thinking. He's kind of a fusion uh, between sort of the, the, the libertarians and the Marxists. Um, so would did, you say a way to synthesize the two agreement would be that, that the real issue is like state privileges toward banks and state and other state privileges given toward certain capitalists at the expense of other potential capitalists. Would you, if you were trying to synthesize the two view views, what what would you make of that synthesis with them? Yes, I mean certainly what you could say is um, in the absence of state privilege, etc., we'd have a radically more egalitarian society, and that would be basically the position of uh, Kevin Carson. Although Carson is interesting here as well because he's now gone off off over the edge on cultural issues. Whereas uh, Catron and Gab haven't, so he's. Whilst I said he's uh, the um, the halfway house, uh, the, the the meeting point, he's kind of gone off off the rails on sort of crazy culture stuff. Uh, but yes, I I, um, I suppose then you get the question, which is which is interesting because it's something that Keith Preston mentioned. Um, he says that the right in theory will defend billionaires, but hate actual existing billionaires, whereas the left. 
in theory, hate billionaires, but then go out of the way to defend all existing billionaires. And by the left and right here, I think he meant sort of the mainstream left and mainstream right, as opposed to the libertarian right or the um, the the radical left. But I do think to some extent there's truth in that. So again, th- this then gets, I think, to the, the question that you could say is the, the real meat of the disagreement between the Marxists and the libertarians is, well, if you had a genuine libertarian society how unequal economically would it be and would this be bad for the poor and would this be bad for social cohesion and then at this point um todd lewis appears and then says no even in uh, even with interest and even and with um absentee property ownership you're going to get too much wealth inequality which is going to cause problems to social order um and so yeah, the, the more fundable disputes, I think, as we discussed in the past, are to what extent is rent and interest legitimate forms of income? Um, I, I think maybe that would, and then how that impacts society as a whole, I think, is re- genuinely the source of dispute between the Marxists and is libertarians. This, does this take us back to Adam Smith? Because, so, like, on one of the long, long parrot room interviews, he would say that, you know, you can't, you, you know, that Adam Smith, Adam Smith is a predecessor of Marx. He says that. And Rothbard, in a strange sense, agrees for better or for worse. On, well, Rothbard would say that, would agree in a sense. Like, so like when Mark, when Adam Smith talks about the wealth of nations, it's very, you know, the visible hand here. He's just, he's not, is he really referring to industrial capitalism and state banks? Or is he just referring to sort of petty bourgeois type uh, crafts and trades? And things like things of those. Men. Does he mean IP? Does he mean you know? If you talk about interest, do you mean like if I loan you a like if I loan you a table for you know and, and a charge of fee for, for that table that's worth more than the table? Is that like a form of rent? Well, maybe maybe on the scale, maybe this is a scaling problem. So maybe like you know if if it's done on a large scale, it poses a problem. On a small scale, it doesn't pose problems. But then what what is, what really are scaling problems? There. So does this take us back to Adam Smith here? Uh, like, is that really where the disagreement is 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 held here? I mean, you know, we've done we've done very boring, very low-viewed episodes on rent, interest, and things like that, and like what is the nature of slavery here? Here, like, you know, is employment a kind of slavery? Like again, a certain area of disagreement here is like the Gab and Catrone, like in as a person who's worked for a mainstream corporation for almost two years. Like I, I'm well aware how alienating the jobs are, and Chris Trone is also very critical of like the WalMarts and Tesco's and Teslas and so forth, and various other mega corporations here. I mean, that's one of the things interesting about Gab; he's very critical of them. Um, but you know, what, what do you make? What do you make of that? What do you make of? The, do we have to go back to Adam Smith here? Um, and then the, the, I guess, I guess this is, it, maybe is Rothbard right that like the right libertarians are the true heirs? Not the Marxists, but it, the right libertarians are true heirs of of Adam Smith here. What, what would you make of that question, Smith? Um, does he go back to Smith? Probably. Well, well, insofar as he sort of develops the labor theory of value, uh, which is important for the Marxists, uh, Marx sees himself really as an heir of Ricardo, who very much puts the labor theory of value at front and center of his work. And uh, Marx considers himself an heir to Ricardo. Um, so, essentially, uh, I don't know if Rothbard said that the right libertarians are the heirs to Smith because Rothbard is very critical of Smith 
because of the labor theory of value and actually holds that the earlier French economists are superior. And in particular, um, he points out to the Salamancan uh, Spanish scholastics of the, get this right, the 16th century. Uh, and then sort of later you got uh, and, uh, right, A.R.J. Turgo and stuff in France in the 17th century. Uh, and to some extent, the, I think he to some extent defends the physiocrats. Although the physiocrats hold the view that the only really productive sector of society is agriculture. So, that, so that's somewhat different. Um, so does it all go back to Smith? Not necessarily. Well, but- does it all go back to Ricardo, we'll say? Well, maybe that's all but Ricardo. Well, what well, well, with with the insofar as you mean what the dispute between the Marxists and the libertarians it goes back there. Yes. Uh, to a large extent, yeah. I, well, I mean, the whole exploitation theory with the Marxists is entirely, in the traditional sense, is based on socially necessary labor time, which is based on the labor theory of value. Um, and actually, uh, Kevin Carson actually attempts to very badly have what he calls a subjective version of the labor theory of value, which he attempts in mutualist political economy, um, which doesn't work at all. Uh, but that's the may. So that's a big dispute. And again, with that, it's kind of the idea that the only real source of value is labor and therefore wages and not rent and interest. So again, you're getting back to it. Now, obviously what depends on what we, what constitutes rent and what constitutes interest is another question on a practical basis. Um, but again, that gets to land use as well. Um, so with Carson, you know, can you have absentee landlords? Are they legitimate or is whoever is using his possession ownership? Or at least uh, to legitimately own something, you must possess it of a possession doesn't imply ownership. Um, that's really what you get to. And yes, you are right. That, that gets us to are somewhat low-viewed episodes. So speaking of uh, pet low views, I would say that the final, only my final line of agreement here is in pessimism. And I think both of them are fairly pessimistic thinkers. And that's why Catron gets called all sorts of names by on Twitter, by suppose, at least that's what he says, by his students um, as well, uh, supposedly. Whether, I mean, again, if you take a sort of first-hand view that most people aren't lying, you know, you say, well, that's probably true. And, and, and again, they're both, Catrone thinks like the revolution is far off. Well, he just he just doesn't think it's gonna if it's gonna happen, it's not gonna happen. With Democrats and if we have Gab on again. They both think their movements. He thinks the libertarian strategies fail. If you look at people like Joe Jordanson, it's not hard to think why this would would happen. If you look at COVID lockdowns, you look at a lot of things. There's a lot of reasons for dissident type people to be pessimistic here. And we did another we did a more we did another episode here here on this. Um, um so you know the the, the so my question for you, Swithin, is are they both correct to be pessimistic here? You know, and like, what, what what should be done about that pessimism? One of the things they both seem to think is art is going to play a role in, in, in non-verbal arguments in, in changing the, the the interests of society towards, you know, maybe not a better future, but a less bad future here. So, they, so they'll, they'll both posit that, that, that if there is going to be a social change, there's going to be have to be some form of Art will play a role here, and that seems plausible here. Now we're both more in the sort of autistic mold. I use autistic in the positive sense, uh, in the sense that we're interested in the sort of pure arguments. And actually, both of them are more in the autistic camp than they probably will be willing to admit as well. Um, um, 
Um, so what do you make about their sort of pessimism here with regards to change? And what do you make about the art point, uh, art in the broad sense here? Swithin? I do think they're both pessimistic, but I think, I, in a sense, I don't think they're unduly pessimistic. I do think they're somewhat realistic. Um, I think that is um, partially due to the fact that they they do not expect to earn any money from their endeavours uh, and consequently then don't have the the interest to try and make things look as bad as possible. Oh, that said, though, uh, fear porn does sell and you can make lots of money from it. I mean, you could argue that Alex Jones uh, engages in that. Uh, in certain circumstances, I think that's possibly true. Um, but um, I, I think that's why they're somewhat sober-minded. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think they're unduly... Um, they're unduly pessimistic. Uh, I tell you, who is unduly pessimistic, which is uh, Peter Hitchens. I mean, he, he, he like there's just nothing that will make him happy. There's no possible like upside to anything. There's always a downside. If anyone wants to go to the permanent pessimism, it's him, um, rather than um, Catrone or uh, Gap. When it comes to um, uh, art, I do think art plays a big role in changing. Um, popular perceptions of what's um, of what's right. Uh, Keith Preston, for instance, has made the claim that uh, English-speaking media is a reason why sort of gay rights movements is going up all around the world because they just consume English-speaking media, uh, and uh, that's a big issue in a lot of the new stuff. Therefore, it sort of catches on around the world, which I think is true. However, um, I think. What matters is what the elites think, because whatever the elites think ultimately then uh, fil filters down. Um, Neem Parvini points this out when it comes to civil rights in the US. Was it to do with segregation? He says that you know when segregation was elite was legal and it was enforced, most people kind of supported segregation in the South. But once they changed the law to make segregation illegal, then slowly over time. Um, it became less popular. The idea here being that actually, you know, politics determines culture. Uh, and I think that's correct in certain respects, but in but, but primarily that the movers of social, the movers and shakers when it comes to social movements and things are the elite class. And so in a sense, what really matters is how do the elites form their views? Um so I mean, so for instance, it was clear that the elites had decided and set upon lockdowns as the as the way to deal with coronavirus, and nothing was really going to shake them from that position. So the question is, how did they form it? Uh, I suppose you might think that the elites in general are more rational than the than the most of the population, so they may be more swayed by argument. Uh, but I don't think that's always true. Um, I need to do some sort of empirical uh, investigation uh, on that. Um, I mean, just with the influence of on, on culture and stuff, I mean, um, Francis Schaeffer, the Christian apologist, who always argued that philosophers are ultimately the most influential uh, because they would influence the artists who would then influence everybody else. And he also had like a hierarchy of which art forms were most important. Well, or m most influential is probably the more precise way of describing that. Um, so... Yes, I do think art, art and artworks are very much important for changing mass pop, 
popular uh, mass beliefs. Now, is this true of the elite class? I think maybe to some extent it is, yes. Um, how different it is, I don't know. You'd have to have a look. But I, I certainly would not underestimate the power of art to change people's belief systems. The Your point about elites, I, I entirely agree with. This is The question is, like, who exactly is elites here, which I think feeds back into the agreement that they end up having here upon who exactly is the ruling class here. It's a kind of left liberal ruling class. So my my I basically finished with my main argument here on their on terms of agreements here that that they both are very pessimistic, which again, lots of pessimistic thinkers. They both have very seemingly diametrically opposed opinion, but a lot of their peripheral positions end up being very similar. Ukraine, COVID, again, two, two well, yeah, it was a little different, but but Catron was making fun of, like, some of the people that Doug Lane was having on who were talking about lockdowns and stuff like that. So, like, I mean, I, I think Catron sort of fought the fight and here, and even on, like, the BLM, he was saying that, like, um, they were either, um, uh, even on BLM, Catron ended up having, like, slightly uh, mildly verboten views here, which which, if you take them seriously here that they start you know leading off into other interesting territories here um and, and so forth so overall i'm basically finished here if you have any more comments on the episode i you could say this is all superficial agreement here that really at bottom there is a kind of disagreement but like i do think dissidents should take so to speak non-mainstream thinkers and this i think we did an episode on terminal philosophy here on on um uh, uh on uh, taboos and I think non-mainstream thinkers sh- shouldn't dismiss um, people who are from opposing camps so quickly here. So, like, I I, I enjoyed listening to this guy. I I think I think if he he writes a few pieces for Compact Magazine, he's written elsewhere. He wrote a piece defending why not Trump, not defending Trump, but why not Trump here. I think they're worth reading. I think they're interesting to read. I would prefer to read that than anything by CNN or NPR or BBC. Um, that would be my Modest, moderate, modest claim at minimum here. Swithin, do you have any final comments? Thanks for doing this episode. I would agree. I I, I think um, dismissal of of radical uh, authors who are diametrically opposed on um, is is a bad thing. I mean, and, and a guy I'm more familiar than with Catron would be Caleb Malpin. He has some interesting stuff to say. He has some incisive analysis. Don't agree with him on everything, but um, it's you can certainly learn something from him. I mean, you're not really going to learn that much from some sort of editorial on the BBC because, I mean, uh, the mainstream stuff just um, spends a lot of time trying to differentiate itself from the other side who is basically on the same side, and so therefore there isn't really any difference at all. And so they just um, dispute over trifles, whereas when you get to sort of the radical end, you then get some more in-principle dispute, which is significantly more interesting. Um, so yeah, we certainly shouldn't dismiss them for that on that basis. And also to the extent that popular movements can make a difference, I mean, I'd be more than happy to, uh, if it was worthwhile for whatever it is, if it just suppose it was on a, a march or a protest or whatever something would work with, I'd be happy to go control and happy to, to share the st- stage with, uh, Caleb Mopin or anybody like that. I mean, um, 
if we're going to make any difference, we're going to need to ally on certain issues where we agree. And if we disagree, fine, we disagree. Um, and I, I certainly think that's necessary. I mean, yeah, the fact that the sort of the ruling class can keep all the distance so divided, such that they won't even uh, work together on areas and they agree, means that there's very little um, there's very little chance of their power waning. Now, I'd just like to thank everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and subscribers to it on Podbean and on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all, please contact us at mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. 